copy of God's Word and turn with me one more time, one final time to Ecclesiastes. Today, chapter 12, as we hear the end of the matter. Uh, Today is uh, a doubly important Sunday, first because we're closing out our study of Ecclesiastes, and second because it is daylight savings time. That means the pastor gets to preach for an extra hour. So, uh, the end of the matter, uh, Ecclesiastes chapter 12, we're going to read verses 9 to 14 today, Ecclesiastes 12, 9 to 14, that's on page 559 of our cart Bibles, and before we read this word, let's join together in a word of prayer, let's pray. Well, Lord our God, we thank you, not just for this passage that we're about to read today and Uh, not just for the book of Ecclesiastes, but for all of your words, the goads and nails that you have given as our great good shepherd. We thank you for wisdom written down for us and communicated by your prophets and apostles and men of old. We thank you for Christ our Savior of whom they speak. We pray uh, that you would give us hearts of faith, uh, lives of faithfulness, that we would be joined to him, that we would trust in him and love you and believe in your promises, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Hear now God's word as we find it in Ecclesiastes chapter 12, beginning to read in verse 9. Besides being wise, the preacher also taught the people knowledge, weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with great care. The preacher sought to find words of delight, and uprightly he wrote words of truth. The words of the wise are like goads, like nails, firmly fixed are the collected sayings. They are given by one shepherd. My son, beware of anything beyond these. Of making many books, there is no end, and of much study is a weariness weariness of the flesh. The end of the matter... All has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments. For this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. Thus far, the reading of God's holy and inerrant word, may he add a blessing as we study it together today. Back in 2008, the editors uh, of an online magazine called Smith Magazine, I've never heard of it either, uh, but Smith Magazine, the editors published a collection of short-form memoirs titled, Not Quite What I Was Planning. Now, the title of the book is also an example of the format, uh, because the book uh, was birthed out of a a request, an online challenge for folks to submit there's summaries of a human life in six words or fewer. And so what you find in the book really are quotes, uh, snapshots, uh, just one-liners about the human experience. And they range everywhere from the lighthearted uh, to the heartbreaking. There are memoirs in the book about unmet expectations, thought I would have more impact. There are memoirs about the pain of youth. Surname rhymes with profanity. Childhood torture. A nine-year-old in a hospital bed wrote, cursed with cancer, blessed with friends. And a 20-something, fresh off of a breakup, submitted, I still make coffee for two. 
Now, you may have noticed, interestingly, that Solomon's conclusion, the end of the matter, also consists of just six powerful words. Fear God and keep his commandments. It's a snapshot, the the aim of Christian living in a single statement. And yet this single statement comes at the end of a long collection of arguments and proverbs and short pithy turns of phrase that are meant to, to sit on our consciences and make us restless. But they all lead up to this one punchy proclamation at the end. Fear God. Keep his commandments. In fact, verse 13 is so abrupt, it's so direct, that if you have been paying attention for the last 11 and a half chapters, it might seem out of place to you. Ecclesiastes has been a slog, a struggle against the unknown, against the irreconcilable. And along the way, much of the book has teetered on the edge of nihilism. Chapter 4, verses 2 and 3 And I thought the dead who were already dead more fortunate than the living who were still alive, but better than both is he who has not yet been and has not seen the evil deeds that are done under the sun. And by the time you get to the end of the book, you might wonder how we got from there to here. How did we move from vanity of vanities to fear God and keep his commandments? How does the simple obedience of chapter 12 answer our insignificance any better than the despair of chapter 4? Well, there's a long answer to that. That answer has to do with the words that Solomon has been using all along, and also with the faith that he's been pointing us toward. Those seem to be the two uh, main emphases in these last six verses, the words that Solomon's been using and the faith that he's been urging. And so we're going to look at this text under those two headings. First, wise words, and second, wise faith. Consider first Solomon's wise words. We find in verse 9 that our preacher, Solomon, is not just wise for his own sake, but he's a teacher of wisdom. He wants his words to go out uh, like seeds, to raise up a harvest of righteousness among the people that he's teaching. He wants to share his wisdom wherever he could. So it says, besides being wise, the preacher also taught the people knowledge, weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with great care. This is a rare look into the, uh, the behind-the-scenes picture of the way that Scripture has come to us, the method by which God has inspired his word. Sometimes when we, when we read things in the New Testament about the word of God being breathed out by God, inspired by God, sometimes when we read that holy men of old spoke by the Holy Spirit as, as they were carried along to speak for God, sometimes we can get these strange ideas in our head of a sort of disembodied trance. Right? We get these strange ideas that maybe the The scriptures came down to us given by an angel on golden tablets that nobody has ever seen since. But that's not how it has happened. That's a Mormon idea, not a Christian one. There are places in the scripture, especially in the prophets, where it seems like God has dictated the exact message that he wanted his people to hear. But by by and large, most often, it seems that the Lord has inspired his scriptures through sanctified study. That's what Luke told us, that he investigated these things to see if they were true, to give an orderly account. He invested in the message that he was getting across. Men were carried along by the Spirit, and it seems that Solomon was carried into the library. 
His wisdom was about evaluating and arranging and, and crafting wise words so they would sit on our consciences and make us restless. Solomon put thought and energy not only into the message that he was getting across, but how he got that message across. And that is where we have a problem with Ecclesiastes. Because it goes on to tell us in verse 10 that the preacher sought to find words of delight. Wait a minute. There are a lot of words that come to mind when you think about the, word, the book of Ecclesiastes, but I bet the word delight is not near the top of your list. Disturbing, maybe. Depressing, maybe. But delightful is a hard sell. Right? Ecclesiastes 1.14, I've seen everything done under the sun. Behold, all of it is vanity. It's all a striving after the wind. Ecclesiastes 3.16, Moreover, I saw under the sun that in the place of justice, even there was wickedness. In the place of righteousness, even there was wickedness. Ecclesiastes 9.3, This is an evil, and all that's done under the sun, that the same event happens to all. Also, the hearts of the children of man are full of evil, and madness is in their hearts while they live, and after that they go to the dead. We could go on. There are highlights along the way. There are glimmers of sunlight on this dark path. But if Ecclesiastes was a drug, it would be handled like a depressant and not like a stimulant. Delightful is not normally the word that comes to our mind when we think about Ecclesiastes, but that is part of the wise design of the words that have come down to us through the preacher. You know, as a teacher of wisdom, Solomon knew that sometimes in order to teach a concept, you first have to show your audience how desirable that concept is for itself. We have a saying that illustrates that idea. We say some things are better caught than they are taught. There are truths that you can hear a hundred times over, and until you understand why you personally need that knowledge, you won't care about it much at all. You'll never latch on to that thing until you can catch it, until it makes sense to you where you are. Now, that's the way it happened with the American habit of brushing our teeth. Did you know that just about 100 years ago, almost nobody in America brushed their teeth? And that was a problem, because sugary, sweetened foods were becoming cheaper and much more prevalent, and oral hygiene was in a terrible state. In fact, Charles Duhigg writes that when the government started drafting men for World War I, so many recruits had rotting teeth that officials said poor dental hygiene was a national security risk. Now, it's not like it was a problem without a solution. In fact, by the early 1900s, toothbrushes were old technology. There was already a mar market filled with toothpastes and tooth elixirs and, and tooth washes, and, and it was out there. The, the technology was available. The answer was at hand, but nobody did it. Almost nobody did it. In fact, most of the dental professionals were skeptical of the value of brushing your teeth at all. And all the paste and elixirs that were out there were pretty bland and tasteless. Well, then came Claude Hopkins. Hopkins was an ad man, and he was hired by the Pepsodent Company uh, to make their product a household name. Well, Hopkins did his research, and he recognized that if America was going to buy into toothpaste, it would have to be on the basis of their own felt needs and not just on the basis of the national statistics. 
So he came up with an ad campaign. Run your tongue over your teeth. You'll feel a film. He says that's what makes your teeth look off color and invites decay. Another ad said, why would any woman have dingy film on her teeth? Pepsodent removes the film. And it worked like magic. Within weeks, the Pepsodent company could not make enough toothpaste to keep up with the demand. Within three years, the Pepsodent toothpaste company went international. Within 10 years, it was one of the highest selling goods anywhere in the globe. And for 30 plus years, it was the highest selling toothpaste in America. Now, we could chalk it all up to greedy capitalism. It's just a trick of advertising, but the reality is that Claude Hopkins got Americans to do something they didn't want to do, and he got them to do it by telling them something they didn't want to hear. Your teeth are grimy, and it's making you look bad. Our Savior used the same tactic sometimes, you know. His conversations, the stakes were a bit higher, but he sometimes told people things that they didn't want to hear because it's what they needed to hear. Jesus was talking to a woman in Sychar next to a well in the heat of the day, and he said, go fetch your husband. He knew she didn't have a husband. He knew that she knew that she didn't have a husband. Five failed marriages, and now there's a guy at home who is unwilling to be number six. And Jesus goes for the jugular when he speaks to this woman. Go fetch your husband. If anybody else had said those words to her, it would have seemed cruel. It would have seemed like salt on a wound. But Jesus said this to get her attention. He said it to expose her need so that she would be ready to see and hear who he was and why he had come. And I wonder if you spoke to that woman later, if she would say, you know, Jesus said the most delightful things that I've ever heard. What a wonderful thing he said to me when he said, Go fetch your husband. And I had to say, sir, I have no husband. How delightful it is, even though it stung at the time. Pastor Lee Gaddis says that those who are for truth must sometimes touch the sore spot. That's what Jesus often did. That's what Solomon has been doing in Ecclesiastes with the 12 chapters of disturbing and depressing words that he's given to us. Verse 11 tells us that the words of the wise are like goads. And like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings. They are given by one shepherd. That means that these are God's words. These are given by the one good shepherd who knows us and loves us and is leading us to himself but sometimes these words can sting. And at first, it seems like the metaphor is mixed, that he's talking about something that drives us and something that stabilizes us, a goad and a nail, but actually it's one picture. Because in Solomon's day, uh, shepherds and herdsmen drove their flocks and their cattle uh, with long sticks, with one pointed end, and sometimes for an extra point, they would have a nail driven sideways through the end of the goad. And so if the livestock began to graze in the wrong direction, away from where the shepherd, the herdsman, wanted them to be, they would get a swift swat on the rump, just sharp enough to break the skin, just, just enough to sting them in the direction of pasture and safety. And that's what our shepherd has been doing through Solomon for the last 12 chapters. 
Sometimes these wise words have stung. Sometimes it feels like he's just swatting us with our mortality, so it's the only thing we can see. Sometimes it feels like he's reminding us that none of our earthly pleasures will amount to anything in the end. Sometimes it seems like he's giving us wounds that bleed with the pain of our own poor, sinful choices, but he does not give these wounds lightly. He does not swat and sting without saving intent. Rather, our shepherd in Ecclesiastes has been showing us the emptiness of life under the sun so that we would at last learn to thirst for something more than what life under the sun can give us. He's been showing us the sad truth of what our human wisdom really amounts to so that we would realize how much we need the wisdom of the God who made us. You know, the New Testament uses a similar uh, image, except there, the shepherd's goad is replaced by the father's rod. And Hebrews 12 reminds us of God's faithful, fatherly discipline. Hebrews 12, 11 tells us, for the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. Do we say disturbing rather than delightful? For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness for those who have been trained by it. And it's delightful. It's delightful when upright words of truth point us in the right direction, even though sometimes it stings. It's delightful when our shepherd touches the sore spot of our lives so that we would realize how much we need his healing touch. There is a wisdom in these words, painful as it might be in some places. There's a wisdom in in preparing us to look above the sun, to see the God who sits enthroned above the nations. There's a wisdom in, in drawing our eyes upward in faith to the God who made us. But there's a danger in thinking that without that upward look, we can find this wisdom on our own. That's the warning of verse 12. My son, beware of anything beyond these, beyond the words of the shepherd. My son, beware of anything beyond these, of making many books. There is no end, and much study is a weariness of the flesh. That takes us right back to where we began. The eye is never satisfied with seeing. The ear has never had enough of hearing. So too the scholar, the skeptic, the person who loves to to pursue Uh, wisdom by man's invention, so too that person never hears enough theories, never considers enough new ideas. There are always more books to be read. There are always more data points to be considered. There are always uh, more views to be brought in, more questions to be asked. There is an impulse in some people toward a never-ending search for wisdom according to human understanding. One commentator says, we grow addicted to research itself, in love with our hard questions, because an answer would spoil everything. My son, beware of anything beyond these, Solomon says. Wisdom, true wisdom, needs to know when to stop. It must know when to leave off speculation and be content simply to trust the Lord with our unknown futures. 
And so Solomon uses his final wise words to point us to that faith. Consider together the the wise faith that we see here, our second point. Verse 13, the end of the matter. All has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. Notice that direct contrast with the previous verse. In verse 12, there is no end to man's theories and man's speculations and his observational analysis of the world around him, yet there must be an end for our search for truth and significance and purpose. There must be a destination for our journey and an answer to put all our questions to bed. So what you understand here is that verse 13 isn't giving us the conclusion of Ecclesiastes. Verse 13 is giving us the conclusion of existence. Fear God and keep his commandments. This is the end of the matter, he says. When everything has been heard, this is the whole duty of man. Actually, the word duty isn't in there in the original. It was put in in the the King James first to explain what Solomon meant in proper English, and we've kept it ever since, but Solomon actually is saying something much more open, something much more comprehensive. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole of humanity, he says. Kol ha-adam. This is all of mankind. This is everything that is. It's the sum total of all that we were created for. To do this, is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. To fear God and keep His commands is to walk in the obedience that Adam and Eve turned their backs on in the garden. To do this is to achieve the purpose for which God made man in His image and placed Him in creation and gave Him a will and a mind and an everlasting soul. This is everything. When all human wisdom has exhausted itself, when every theory has been heard, when every debate has been closed, and man goes, as we found in verse 5, to his eternal home, this call shall stand unbroken and immovable. Fear God and keep his commandments. It's not the first time we've heard this language in Ecclesiastes. But it is the first time that it's been applied to our purpose rather than our daily portion. And it aligns Ecclesiastes with that great orthodox tradition of the Old Testament. Right, so we recognize that between the beginning of wisdom and the end of the matter is the same call. To walk in the fear of the Lord. A single summons to all believers. And we've heard it before. But even if we've heard it before, even if we have embraced it before we still have a hard time getting our categories right on this idea of the fear of the Lord. Alistair Begg says that for contemporary people, sometimes this call to fear the Lord sounds a little too Old Testament-y. It sounds like the kind of thing that belongs more to the law than it does to grace. Fear the Lord sounds like a warning that God is watching, like he's just waiting to catch you in the act. That he would love nothing more than to see you screw up so he can rub your nose in it. And if we're honest, we don't want a God that we have to fear. We would rather have a God that we get to love. And wasn't that what Jesus said? Didn't he change the ending of Ecclesiastes? Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And isn't that nice? Isn't Isn't that more inviting? That's what we want. Perfect love that casts out all fear. 
But if that's what we think about the fear of the Lord, we really have gotten our categories mixed. In the close of Ecclesiastes, Solomon says we must fear God because judgment is coming. Verse 13, excuse me, 14. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. But Jesus said the same thing. Jesus didn't change the ending of Ecclesiastes. Luke chapter 12, verse 2, Jesus says, Nothing is covered that will not be revealed, or hidden that will not be known. Therefore, whatever you've said in the dark shall be heard in the light. What you've whispered in private rooms shall be proclaimed on the housetops. Every hidden secret thing, whether good or evil, will be revealed. And then immediately, the next words out of Jesus' mouth in Luke chapter 12, verse 4, is a warning. I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body. And after that, have nothing more they can do. But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who, after he has killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. There is only one who has authority to cast into hell, and it's not the devil. He himself will be cast. And Jesus is telling us, this sounds pretty Old Testament-y. Jesus is telling us that we must walk in the fear of the Lord. And this is the same compassionate Savior that told us that obedience grows out of genuine love. And those two concepts are not at odds with one another. To know God is to fear Him, and to fear Him is to love Him. Because in the Scriptures, love for God is the impulse that gives God the respect and the honor and the obedience that He's due. That's also an Old Testament concept. The great commandment that was given to the Jews, Deuteronomy chapter 6. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. And these words that I command you today shall be on your hearts. Love and obedience, fear and keeping the commandments, do you catch it? Love for God means hearing God's word and keeping God's word because we believe that his word is wisdom for life and eternity. And so in Psalm 2, the Holy Spirit calls us to serve the Lord with fear, to rejoice with trembling. And so in Acts chapter 9, Luke reports that walking in the fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Holy Spirit, the church multiplies. And so at the close of Scripture, in Revelation chapter 19, John heard a voice in heaven crying out, Praise our God, all you His servants, you who fear Him, small and great. You can do your own word study. You can trace this concept through the pages of your Bible, and you can find that the fear of the Lord and love for your Heavenly Father are two wheels spinning on the same axle, and they're both moving in the direction of obedience. Burke Parsons puts it this way. He says, as Christians, we don't have a servile, cowering, slave-like fear of the Lord. Rather, we have a filial, reverential, humble fear of the Lord. He says the gospel is the difference between being afraid of God and fearing God. Hear that again. The gospel is the difference between being afraid of God and the fear of God, but you already know that truth. Because you've already sung it in the words that John Newton gave you. "'Twas grace that taught my heart to fear, and grace my fears relieved." It's the gospel makes the difference. So trust God enough 
to love Him. Love God enough to fear Him. Fear God and keep His commandments. Fear Him because this is what you were made for. And yes, fear Him because His judgment is coming. This is the final, final word of Ecclesiastes. God's judgment is coming. And if it feels like one more depressing note in this symphony of despair, you need to listen again to the hope that we have in these words. Fear God and keep His commandments. Why? Verse 14, For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. That's the answer, isn't it? It is the resolution that this book has been preparing us for. Do you remember the ground that we have covered in Ecclesiastes? Do you realize that at every turn in this book, Solomon has been showing you the vanity and the frustration of what life would be if this life is all there is? What it would amount to if there was no God, no judgment to come. Chapter 2, he says, again, I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun. Sorry, chapter 4. I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun. Behold, the tears of the oppressed, and they had no one to comfort them. On the side of their oppressors, there was power, and there was no one to comfort them. How vain, if this life is all there is, and there is no judgment, and no one to comfort those who are oppressed. Chapter 6, for who knows what is good for a man? While he lives the few days of his vain life, which he passes like a shadow, who can tell man what will be after him? Chapter 8, then I saw the wicked buried. They used to go in and out of the holy place. They were praised in the city where they had done such things. All is vanity, he says. Life under the sun, if it's all there is, then life is a formlessness and a void. A brief, disordered, broken existence that comes from nothing and goes to nothing. If there is no God and no judgment, there is no justice, there is no salvation, there is no hope. If all there is is all we can see, then life is pitiful and meaningless and it's a vanity of vanities. But the message of Ecclesiastes is that life under the sun is not all there is. There is a God, the Lord of glory who sees everything, who judges everything, who rewards everyone who seeks him in truth. Derek Kidner has been one of my guides and through me one of your guides as we've gone through Ecclesiastes. And so to quote him one more time, he shows us that everything is not meaningless because of this last portion. He says, It kills complacency to know that nothing goes unnoticed and unassessed, not even the things we disguise from ourselves. If God cares as much as this, nothing can be pointless. In the end, the message of Ecclesiastes is to live each moment like God is watching. Not God in the form of some heavenly policeman, not some cosmic killjoy who's just waiting to catch you in the act. No, God the loving Father is watching. God the one who disciplines us for our good. He's keeping an account. He's the one who sent us words of wisdom through holy men of old as they were carried along to show us the way of truth and obedience and righteousness and salvation. 
He's the God who's not left us without a witness to the goodness that awaits those who love him and keep his commandments. There is a God who is watching, who will right all the wrongs that his people have suffered in Concord and in Indonesia and in all the places that we pray for all over the world every week. There is a God who is watching, who is able to repay all the years that the locust has eaten. There is a God who notices every faithfulness, every sacrifice, every good intention, every whispered prayer. Better than all that, there is a God watching over us who knows even better than we do how far we fall short of his perfect standard of righteousness. The same God who who will bring our deeds into judgment has come down in the flesh of a man to bring us deliverance. So Ecclesiastes speaks of judgment at the end, but the New Testament tells us that the Father has committed all judgment into the hands of his Son, Jesus Christ. What greater hope could you have than to know that on the day of justice and mercy, the hands that will hold the gavel of God's righteousness are the same hands that bled for sinners on Calvary's tree? What greater message could you hear than on the last day it is the Lamb of God who will stand in the place of the redeemed and proclaim that all of their misdeeds have been laid on him and all of his righteousness has been credited to their account by faith? What more joyous declaration could come to your ears than the message that in Christ nothing is meaningless precisely because he is the first fruits of a new humanity? And on the day of judgment, the Father will say to his faithful ones the the words that rightly deserve to be spoken to the Son and to the Son alone. Well done, good, faithful servant. Dear friends, this is not the God who is worthy of our faith and our fear. Is this not the Savior who is worthy of all of our worship? This is the end of the matter. All has been heard. If you love him, you will keep his commandments. Let's pray. Gracious Father, we thank you for your words. We thank you that you draw us near to yourself by your Holy Spirit so that these words become true and alive in us, that you give us life by faith in your gospel. We thank you for Christ our Savior, for taking that judgment which we ought to fear and making it the most joyous declaration. We thank you for his work on our behalf and we pray that you would give us faith to trust in you and walk with you until all of your promises are fulfilled for your people. We pray in Jesus' name.